The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members, as always, you are keeping Veritas alive. And for over a year now, we have been trying to make tonight's show a reality, and I'm glad we are finally getting it done. Tonight's special guest is none other than Richard C. Hoagland. NASA, fact or fiction? Richard will be with us shortly. And let me remind you that the auction for the very first advertising space for the Veritas website is now underway on eBay. You still have time to participate. The auction will end on Monday, May the 28th, and the winner will receive 30 days of advertising on our main page. For more information, click on the This Space Up For Auction link on our website, veritasshow.com. And if you want to listen to tonight's full show and all our past shows but cannot afford it, here's a solution. Transcribe a show. Click on the free subscription link of our website. And if you are ready and are capable to transcribe, contact us on or before May 31st and you will receive a six-month subscription, which includes all our past and future shows, 
that's access to almost 100 shows for almost two years. Just for transcribing one show. After May 31st, we will revert to a three-month subscription instead. So don't wait any longer. This offer is ending very soon. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, that's 77 to date, the Manticore Forum, and the Veritas Chatroom. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. Oh, and don't forget, the sound quality is CD audio quality, which you won't get anywhere else. And those of you who are forum members know that my interaction with you does not end with Veritas. It only begins. We discuss news that you won't find anywhere else. It's your benefit as a member. And here are our upcoming guests. Next week, Jay Whitener, followed by Dr. Joseph Farrell, James Gilliland, and Jim Mars. You cannot get a better lineup. If this is not the most compelling reason for you to become a member, nothing else will convince you. And speaking of James Gilliland, I will be attending the eSETI 2010 Science, Spirit, and World Transformation Conference from July the 2nd through the 5th at James Gilliland's Ranch. Many of you have shared your experiences, and there's no way I will miss it this year. Some of you have already contacted me, letting me know you will be there, so I look forward to meeting you in person. For more information, click on the eSETI Conference banner on our website, veritasshow.com. And here's an update from Cliff High. I just wrote to Cliff asking him if it was only me who thought the media was absolutely underreporting and understating the magnitude of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. This is what he said. Quote, How close are you to the volcano of oil in the Gulf? Luckily, I'm not close. He continued, Are you prepared to evacuate if they do some more screwiness down there and really unleash it? Our ill winds from nuked oil volcano linguistics are racking up fast. And consider that over the next few months, the habitability of the Gulf states may decrease rapidly in some areas, if not the majority of the region. The issue is much deeper, no pun intended, than anything you have likely heard about the oil volcano. The impact is that this fits our ill winds linguistics at an astonishing rate so far and continues to grow. The result equals, get ready for this, 1.289 billion dead in the next year to 19 months. This is likely the trigger for the diaspora later this year that drives 220 million north in North America and some 30 million south in South America. More later. Very, very dire news. Every time you hear the media say spill, internally, think oil volcano, unquote. Thanks, Cliff, for that update. And I was just put in touch with Adrian, or Adrian Salbucci, from Argentina. He was just on Ren's radio discussing the global economic collapse and the fact that Rockefellers have been in Argentina for over 50 to 60 years, buying lots of land. You know how he usually discuss how the Bush family purchased a very large piece of property in Paraguay, too? 
Why all this money heading down to South America? Obviously, they know something that we don't. I will have Adrian on the show very soon. For updates and more news, visit our website and our forum and interact with enlightened members around the world. And now, get ready to shatter your paradigms about NASA. For over 50 years, this military agency, yes, not civil, you heard that right, military agency, has been operating as an illusion for the masses to make us believe space exploration is a reality. Did we really go to the moon? Are our astronauts heroes or victims? Who is really in charge of NASA? And what can this agency disclose? If you want to continue living in the illusion, stop this audio now. If you want to know the facts, don't go anywhere. Richard C. Hoagland is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. right here on the very test show is supplied by the independent artists from jamendo.com if you hear a song you like go over to our homepage veritasshow.com click on the guest look up the song and download it you can even buy the group's cds in many cases right there at jamendo.com This is Dr. Joseph Farrell, and you're listening to Veritas. Richard C. Hoagland is a former Space Science Museum curator, a former NASA consultant, and during the historic Apollo missions to the moon, was science advisor to Walter Cronkite and CBS News. For over 20 years, Hoagland has been leading an outside scientific team in a critically acclaimed independent analysis of possible intelligently designed artifacts on Mars. Richard and his team's investigations have been quietly extended to include over 30 years of previously hidden data from NASA, Soviet, and Pentagon missions to the moon. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, Dark Mission. He is one of the most popular long-term guests and science advisor of the very popular show Coast to Coast AM. And directly from New Mexico, for the first time on Veritas, Richard C. Hoagland. Hello, Richard, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi there, Mel. Glad to be with you. I'm happy to have you. By the way, Richard, you don't happen to be the current U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan, right? I say this because the ambassador's name is Richard Hoagland, and I know you speak with eloquence and diplomacy, but I just want to make sure I'm not speaking with a U.S. diplomat because that would change the angle of my questions. (laughs) No, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of the gentleman, and it's not me. Great. Richard, for those around the world who may not be familiar with you, and there may be some. Give us some background, your saga, your awakening, and, and your evolution, which is something that happens to most of us. We seem to evolve, transform, and awake. Well, that's a tall order. Uh, gosh, someone asked me this the other day. It's, how did you get into this? And it's kind of like, I believe it's, it's something to do with, uh, you know, if, if you want to really get metaphysical, some kind of a life path. If you start out asking questions, if you're a curious person... And eventually you reach a point where the road seems to be blocked, where the answers 
do not seem to be forthcoming. At that point, you should, at least I guess I did, uh, take stock and ask, you know, well, what's wrong here? What's what's wrong with this picture? Why am I not, you know, continuing a process? Which, of course, is what we call science. And that happened to me, oh, what, 20, 30 years ago, when I realized that NASA was not telling the truth, that it was lying to people, that it had found extraordinary things, that it was not divulging, that it wasn't publishing, that it was, in fact, actively trying to cover up. Um, So for me, I guess the epiphany, which was, as I said, part of this process, occurred quite a while ago, and it was because the process was not being served. I mean, science is supposed to be neutral, uh, value neutral, data neutral, politics neutral, racial neutral. It's just knowledge. I mean, science means knowledge. And when you find out, as I do, that certain knowledge keepers have as their function uh, keeping everybody else from that knowledge, that's for me when the lights came on and I said, wait a minute, uh, there's something really, really wrong here. And I simply continued down the road and tried to remove as best I could some of the barriers and go around some of them and tunnel through some of them. And uh, here we are. What was, and I know it must have been disappointing, what was the moment when you realized that the facade was not what it was supposed to be, the, the light bulb moment? I don't know whether I could describe it as disappointing, because what's on the other side of these barriers is extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's the truth of who we are. It's, it's who we are as a culture, as a species, as a civilization, as various peoples, human beings, on this little green dot. But what, what I discovered through the data you know, path was that there was certain information that NASA, who I had worked for, as you know, as a consultant uh, right. for some years, uh, I had covered as part of my uh, professional broadcast responsibilities at CBS the missions going to and from the moon. Well, you can imagine, I guess, how I felt when I discovered that the things that we saw, the things that we were allowed to see during the Apollo program, was not, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Right. And and uh, I guess I'm not so much disappointed as I am saddened by the incredible uh, de- de- deprivation of most of humanity, because we cannot be sane, we cannot be proper stewards of this planet, we, we certainly cannot fulfill our, our destiny, whatever that means, in the sense of achieving, you know, justice and peace and honor and and the things that we want to live in comedy with other human beings on this world, if we are kept from who we really are. And that, to me, is kind of the big bottom line. What they're standing in the way of is us knowing who we are. And then, of course, everything else follows from that, because that's the that's the mechanism of tyranny. That's, that's how you control people. That's how you uh, keep people in the dark so that they do what you want as opposed to what they want. And that appears to have been a process that's been very, very long in the making, and it's not going to be easily unraveled. And when I said uh, disappointment, I was mainly referring to the line, the secrecy, and that's what we call this show today, NASA Fact or Fiction. Is there any resemblance of the society we live in today and what we were taught in school growing up? Dimly. There are echoes. I mean, I've met a lot of extraordinary people in NASA. I've worked with them. Um, they are 
clueless. They're in the dark, and many of them don't want to wake up. They really become very angry when you try to show them that what they're serving and what they're a part of is not exactly what they signed up for. As as we say in Dark Mission, which I freely stole from an intel officer that I've been in touch with for many years that has been a very reliable source who feels, in essence, the same way I do, the lie is different at every level. And if you don't understand that the little pool of light that you're operating in is really only the little pool of light you're in, it doesn't extend to the entire agency or certainly to civilization, you won't make an effort to reach beyond that little pool to find out what someone in the next little pool of light thinks they know and has figured out. So what we have to do in, in this metaphor, if you can imagine the world on the night side seen from space, all darkness, we have to... We have to connect all these little pools of light again so that people, humanity as a whole, knows who it is and where it's been and where it's going. And the only way to do that is through the research that we're doing and other people are doing and in conversations such as this. And I know this may be a sensitive question, but I want to get it out of the way from the beginning because some people have asked me. Okay. Do you believe the Apollo mission really went to the moon? Unquestionably. Absolutely. I have zero, zero, zero doubt. Now, how can I be so confident? Because I've seen the real photographs. And it makes zero sense to me in a situation where everything was staged, everything was faked, that they would also fake alien ruins on the moon and then vigorously and aggressively deny them again and again and again and again. That, 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 that's just incomprehensible. There, there's no logic there. So it's much more logical, you know, the Occam's razor approach, right. to, to say that they went there on secret hidden agendas. They were funded by a massive American effort, the, the biggest priority since World War II to put all the resources together and go to the moon in less than 10 years to beat the Russians. Obviously, as a society, as a nation, we were encouraged, led to do this by John Kennedy, when, as we discover in Dark Mission, John Kennedy apparently figured out what the real agenda was. They killed him. And they continued going to the moon in secret, bringing stuff back. And then when their missions were over, they stopped going. And we haven't been back since. And notice now that our current president has said we're not going back again. We've been there, done that. And that makes absolutely no sense at all, which, of course, tells me there's something huge that the establishment is trying to keep us desperately in these last few hours of, of the cover-up, you know, metaphorically speaking, um, from trying to find out, from trying to put together, from trying to realize is really there. And I don't think this battle is over by a long shot. In fact, I don't think that the current so-called Obama plan to, to not go anywhere for the next 10, 15, 20 years is going to stand. I think enough people, both in the House and the Senate and in the United States here, and in the population as a whole, are going to vigorously demand that we have a space program at least equal to the rest of the world, because the rest of the world is going. I mean, China, Japan, India, Russia, the Europeans, they're all getting space programs. Why, the other day, Britain just announced the formation of a space agency. And <laughs> wonder of wonders, Argentina, a few days ago, announced the creation of a space program with the assistance of the former Soviet Union. So how can the United States stand on the sidelines and just mark time 
in the in the backwaters of history, while the rest of the planet goes out and inherits what's out there in the solar system. It it just is inconceivable, and I see this as part of a very complicated, uh, almost four-dimensional chess game, where ultimately the objectives that are going to be laid out for us are not at all what they are at the moment, because certain pieces are not in place, apparently, on the board. And that, what you just said, is one of the biggest enigmas out there. Before President Obama said that we're not going again, as you said, the Russians, the Indians, the Japanese are all going. Why, since 1969, from the first time we stepped on the moon to 2020, that's over 50 years, why the parenthesis of time, Richard? Well, I think it's because there are certain forces uh, that, are, that are, you know, trying to run the world. I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure they're that successful, but I think they are trying, and I think they're trying to manipulate history into certain channels. And one of those channels that would upset everything and would certainly destabilize the current power structure would be the absolute certainty and clear uh, public enunciation that there, in fact, is an entire ancient civilization all across the solar system in all kinds of, of, of uh, artifacts and ancient spacecraft and ruins on various places that NASA and the other agencies have discovered and then quietly kept secret for these past 50 years. I think we're at a real break point, and I don't think this cover-up is going to last much longer because we are not in a monopolar world. We're in a multipolar world now. You know, we don't even have the old, you know, bipolar Cold War with the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So I think it's not going to be long before this this current effort to keep the past, you know, in the present is going to fail and something remarkable and extraordinary and absolutely phantasmic is going to be presented because the the, the pressure is there, the data is there, the evidence is there. And a lot more people on a planet of six billion people are working on it, discussing it, sifting it, puzzling it out, working on it in the back rooms behind the scenes, and it is bursting at the seams waiting to to basically be born. And let's just spend some time on Apollo because I think this is important to put a perspective. The Apollo eleven post flight first press conference. You remember their faces, their demeanor. Instead of being the press conference of one of the most exciting moments in human history, the astronauts were looking down, and their lack of emotion seemed to contradict what they were doing a few days prior. What's your opinion on that? Well, there, as, as, as we raise in, in the book, in Dark Mission, both in, in Dark Mission and in the second edition, which is the revised and expanded edition, we, we put in something like 60 more pages with more photographs and, and, and more content and references. Um, I don't think the astronauts, and I have to be very careful in how I, how I say this, I don't think the astronauts have been, how should we say, left alone. I think they have been subjected to medical procedures. Hmm. Uh, for want of a better term, uh, we can call it um, hypnosis. We can call it some kind of mind-altering therapy. We can call it we can call it whatever we want. I don't think that a lot of them um, have full memories of uh, exactly what they saw and experienced and even did on the moon. And there's tremendous amounts of evidence that this is true, starting with um, uh, Dr. Ed Mitchell, who was mm -hmm. the 
lunar module pilot on Apollo 14. I remember some years ago when he wrote a book called The Way of the Explorer. Of the Explorer. And in that book, he absolutely comes right out and admits that he is very disturbed by the fact that he can't remember what it felt like to be on the moon and doing all those things. And I know Ed Mitchell. I've known Ed Mitchell for decades. I met him at the Cape. I met him with uh, a very famous Russian poet, uh, Yevtushenko, many, many years ago during, uh, I believe it was the lead-up to the Apollo-Soyuz mission, which was the first joint U.S.-Soviet mission in Earth orbit, uh, rendezvousing uh, two spacecraft, Russian and American. And and I remember that time that Ed was talking about the fact that he couldn't remember the feelings attached to the most extraordinary high that you can imagine. If you're someone in that position, you've trained all your life, you know, you've gone through all the right schools, you've you know, been in the military, you finally achieved NASA status as an astronaut, you've gone through arduous training and, and, and uh, you know, class, classes and worldwide field expeditions, and you can't remember what it felt like to walk on the moon? And then we began looking at some of the reports from the other astronauts, people like Pete Conrad and, you know, up, up to the, you know, the man of enigma himself, who was Neil Armstrong, who has become virtually a hermit in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And you start to look at this and you begin to mark down specifics and, and common phrases and common reports, which we have put in dark mission from many of these astronauts. And the bottom line is that all of them apparently have problems remembering. And, and it bothers them intensely inside that they can't remember and they've developed various kind of flip catchphrases to to get rid of it if people, you know, kids or teachers or just ordinary folks bring it up in public. Um, Conrad was very good at that, you know, by saying basically it was so amazing that he couldn't possibly describe it in words. But those are all cover phrases to cover the fact that apparently all these astronauts cannot themselves remember what it felt like to be on the moon. Now, that sounds like mind control, Richard. If you want to use that term, yes. I think that's a kind of a primitive term left over from the Korean War. I think it's, you know, that and brainwashing and various other other phrases. I think it's much more sophisticated in that it is basically an alteration, a uh, a replacement of the actual memories with a pseudo set of memories. Because if you ask any of these guys, you know, what did you do on EVA 3 at 105.7 hours mission elapsed time? They can tell you. Mm-hmm. They can absolutely tell you. It's like they are, you know, they're reading from some kind of internal tape or, or DV or, or program. What they can't tell you is what they felt like, what they were experiencing, that sense of awe and wonder and mystery and, you know, trying to pinch yourself through the spacesuit. My God, am I actually here? I can't believe that. That, 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 that kind of thing. So that lack of human emotion, going back to the dichotomy that my friend Gene Roddenberry laid out so brilliantly in Star Trek between, you know, human emotions and, and non-human control of emotions, that, that tampering appears to be in evidence in the astronauts. And, and once you looked into that 
And once you realize that these fine Americans, these patriotic Americans, have had something happen to them, so they don't remember the ultimate experience of their lives in the, in the way that they should, then a whole bunch of other possibilities begin to enter the equation. And you put that together, as I said, with the photographs, with the images. And the bottom line is they saw things they are not allowed to tell the rest of us, and they themselves do not remember. And speaking of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, uh, for those listeners who may not remember, last year when I interviewed him, I asked him a very peculiar question. I said, Dr. Mitchell, can you tell us here something that you or NASA have not told before of what you saw on the moon? All of a sudden, he started breathing profusely. He said he couldn't hear me, and consequently, we got disconnected. Uh, to uh, go back to the moon, to learn to use the space environment in near-Earth orbit better, uh, to prepare ourselves to go on to Mars in due course, um, while, as our civilization matures. But the main thing is to use the tools of space and the technologies uh, for, the, for the betterment of civilization and for non-warlike means, but to, but to help us discover ourselves and our place in the universe in a better way. You said on a British radio show that you know for sure we're not alone in the universe and that you happen to be privileged to be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet and that the UFO phenomenon is real, although it's been covered up by governments for quite a long time. Dr. Mitchell, did you see anything on the moon Hello? that NASA did not show us nor tell us? Dr. Mitchell? Hello? Did you get the question? Hello? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Well, it looks like we've uh, lost each other. Now, that's very strange. Hello? Oh, hung up. I didn't ask the question again. And we get disconnected every so often with Dr. Paul Aviolette. We got disconnected 24 times, speaking of anti-gravity. It could be technical, or it could be, as you said, memory replacement that's triggered by certain questions, well, don't you think? Well, it sounds so much like a post-hypnotic suggestion. Uh, right. A similar thing happened to uh, Buzz Aldrin very, very soon. I mean, very soon being like, what, four or five years after he'd come back, uh, a friend of mine uh, with NBC, who's still actually covering the space program for NBC. His name is Jay Barbary, and I'm sure you've seen him on, on various broadcasts on NBC. Certainly. Jay uh, did an event at, I think, the Air Force uh, facility there at, uh, um, I'm trying to remember which Air Force base it was. It was in California. I think it was Palmdale, where they actually, you know, build or, or, or built some of the shuttle and, and some of the other high-tech weaponry of the United States. And they they had a Kiwanis Club meeting, you know, just one of those good old boy things where, where they gather some people together as an audience, and Barbary and Aldrin were sitting on stage, and Jay was being very informal, and, you know, they've known each other a very long time because he's been, uh, Jay has, you know, been present through the astronaut training and through all the various, you know, lead up to the program. I mean, he's been covering the space program from from the beginning, beginning. So he just basically asked him this question, which is, you know, a key question everybody wants to know. Well, what did it feel like, you know, when you stepped out of the lunar module and put your foot, you know, your booted foot on that moon dust for the first time? 
And Aldrin reports in his book that he got suddenly so desperately ill, he had to rush off stage out a side door into the alley where his wife watched him throw up. Yes, I've heard that. And this mm-hmm. is, well, it's in his, in his book, this is clear evidence of some kind of emotional uh, reaction to mind control, to some kind of post-hypnotic suggestion. You know, you will not go anywhere near there in your mind. If someone asks you a question, you'll feel ill, you'll change the subject. That that standard kind of stuff we've seen in, in all the movies. I mean, the, the fact that you encountered it with, with uh, Mitchell, who also reports later on, and I don't know whether it's in his book or it's in someone else's book, that he actually tried to get therapeutic help for this situation. And he went to a very famous therapist who, um, I'm trying to remember what her name is at the moment, it'll, it'll come to me, I guess. And she reports that when they got to that part of the questioning, because he, he had her put him into a hypnotic regression so he could get past these apparent blocks to get to what it felt like to walk on the moon. And when they got there in that session, according to this individual, uh, Mitchell would constantly keep changing the subject. He would say things like, oh, that's unimportant. Let's go on, you know, and I don't have to, you know, dwell on that. Let's, let, let, let's focus on so-and-so. So the, the, the therapy, whatever it is, uh, aversion therapy is what you could call it, seems to be extremely deep, extraordinarily professional, and probably is reactivated with, uh, this is not an appropriate term, but I'll use it anyway, you know, booster shots or something, uh, periodically, to where the individual uh, really, really, really does not want to go there. Give you an example. Do you remember during last year, during the 40th anniversary of the Apollo missions, how when everybody was talking about well, what should the Obama administration be doing, you know, should it continue with Project Constellation, which is the follow-on to Apollo that the Bush administration established back in 2004 to go back to the moon and someday on to Mars? And as part of the discussion, Buzz was making the rounds of the various talk shows, and he was on C-SPAN, I believe, and this was the day of or the day after the anniversary last July, and the, the, the interviewer asked him, you know, well, what do you think about going back to the moon? And he said something like, oh, that's not important. You know, we've been there. We should really go to Mars. Mars, yeah, really I remember. We should go to Phobos. Right. Which is this little tiny speck, this little little rock, less than 20 miles in, in diameter, okay. which um, is, I mean, it's certainly not a place you would think that the second man to walk on the moon from the United States of America would be recommending um, that the that we we should be sending a national space program to a tiny rock orbiting Mars that no one's even heard of, but it was like the the aversion therapy seemed to be so strong that day that in that interview that he would be willing to go anywhere else but the moon, so he wouldn't have to talk about the moon in terms of national policy and and revisiting and putting bases there and all the things that one would normally expect that we would do as part of a maturing, developing space program that was going to be achieving the, the second stage of what we all envisioned would be happening, which is you go and you put a base on the moon and you learn how to live there and you learn how to live in outer space. and You practice. Three, you, you basically practice because you're only three days away. Exactly. And, and for an engineer to basically reject that logic, that sanity, that grounded engineering approach to doing 
I mean, look, space travel is still impossible. It really is really, 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 really hard. And the idea that you would just leap off into nowhere without any preparation to to a little tiny moon of of a, of a planet that's at best 35 million miles away compared to a place that's only a quarter of a million just made no engineering or logistical or economic or any other sense. But I got the real feeling watching Aldrin during the interview that his inner inner demons, his inner compulsion, whatever programming had been used by whatever doctors to keep him from describing what he really saw on the moon was taking over and he was willing to divert the entire conversation and not the entire U.S. space program anywhere but the moon because of that internal programming. And, you know, it, it's awful to be able to, to say this and not be able to prove it because we don't have the records, we don't have the doctors, we have innuendo, we have things in the shadows, we have rumors, but we also have right in front of us very clear behavior which is antithetical to every other famous explorer who's done something unusual and breathtaking uh, in the history of, of our species that I have ever encountered or, or, or read about. I mean, I used to be taken by my friend Gene, Gene Roddenberry, mm-hmm. to the Explorer Club meetings in New York periodically because Gene was a member and, you know, he could bring guests and he would bring me a couple of times. And, and and you meet people like, you know, people who stood on top of, of, of Mount Everest or people who went to the South Pole or people who, you know, dove to the bottom of the Marianas Trench as the Picards did in the first bathosphere. And they have not acted in any way, shape, or form like the astronauts. They're not ashamed of what they did. They don't try to change the subject. They will talk to you endlessly, I mean endlessly, about what it felt like and what they ate and the temperatures and the privations and what they went through and all the little details of getting there and the home situation and their friends and their family and their daughters or sons if if they are, uh, you know, uh, married and, and have families. The astronauts have acted as a species, as a subset of the human race. As a as a, as almost different than any other frontline explorers that we have ever read about, and and since most of those journeys, those adventures, those odysseys have been, uh, you know, in, in in books, it's very hard to compare one to one when you've got living astronauts you can interact with, but we do have some people on this planet, as I said, members of the Explorers Club, who have done equivalent, very difficult things. And these living history types, explorer types, do not act like the astronauts do. And you may know the story of James Fox. You know James Fox. I, uh, yeah, I, I know James, yes. Well, Buzz Aldrin called him up and said, uh, if you want to interview me, you're going to have to fly to Monte Carlo. You know that story, right? Mm-mm. He went to Monte Carlo and waited for almost a week. And uh, Buzz Aldrin would not show up. And he called him because, of course, Monte Carlo is very expensive and said, Mr. Aldrin, we need to do this. Is this too expensive? Okay, okay. So uh, tomorrow in my lobby in the morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. So he showed up at 8. Hours went by and nothing happened. So he called him up and said, I'm here waiting. And Buzz Aldrin said, I'm sorry. I can't do this. And he left. He stood him up. And then in talking with, uh, I had a conversation with Dr. Stephen Greer, and this is about Neil Armstrong. He told me 
he tried to get Neil Armstrong to speak at one of his conferences. And someone Neil Armstrong appointed contacted Dr. Greer and said, quote, if I attend, they will kill me and my family. I learned how recluse he was myself at the age of seven when he was supposed to arrive in my town on a cruise ship. And he never came out to engage the press. Why is he so reclusive? Is the reclusiveness voluntary or involuntary, if you know what I mean? We're talking about Armstrong now. Now we're talking about Armstrong, yes. Okay, I think we have two classes of astronauts. I think you have one class who definitely have their minds um, altered by some kind of therapy, medical technology, brainwashing, mind control, whatever you want to call it. I think we have a second class of astronauts, and Neil would fall into that one, who, because they are historical figures, because Neil is the first human being in the modern era to to set foot on the moon, um, his memories have not been altered. But he is being very carefully uh, monitored and, and, and basically controlled. And I think that's why he's been a, been a recluse. And, of course, anybody coming at this without any background, you know, it's going to sound like, you know, two guys on the radio making the, the noises and ravings of, of lunatics. How can you be talking mm-hmm. about this, about national heroes? Well, there's something very, very, very wrong with this picture. And until we get to the bottom of it, until we figure out what's wrong, we cannot make it right, and we can't make it right for the rest of humanity, who, of course, are, are, are dying because we need the technologies and science and knowledge that we and other nations have encountered now uh, in these alien, ancient places that we are not supposed to even remember that we've been to and, and what we saw, and that's my bottom line. The space program is real. We did go to the moon, and the people who went there are basically... Um, survivors of an experience that they never bargained for, they never they never put in for, they never thought they would be getting involved in, and and they are basically the victims of forces which are using them to keep the rest of us still in the dark. That's a good explanation. I always call this one a giant blunder for mankind, how NASA lost moon pictures. There are documents stating the boxes in question were withdrawn, but no one knows where they went. Oh, how could they lose Apollo 11 videotapes? Yes. How could they lose 700 boxes of moon footage, Richard? Well, it's of course silly and impossible, and the fact that the press doesn't excoriate them and and try to really get to the bottom of it is another indication that we don't have a press that's worthy of the naming anymore either. Um, no, that's the, those are tapes that we're never supposed to see because with modern digital technology, what you could do in an afternoon in a computer with those original videos. Uh, would probably... Uh, remaster them. Well, you'd remaster them, and you'd basically reach down into the noise and pick out the signal. Right. And we're never supposed to see what they really saw, so those tapes had to be lost. And this is a part that always puzzled me. To ensure a direct transmission signal from the moon, NASA had to maintain stations in three continents, four countries, Australia, California, and in Spain. Then we saw the blurry pictures of Neil Armstrong climbing down the ladder. Those images were taken from a camera pointing at a TV monitor. That's why they were so blurry. At least, why couldn't we have seen the direct first-generation images later, Richard? Well, that's a very long and complicated history. I was involved in quite a bit of that because as a consultant to CBS. Um, right. I was interested, of course, in anything that would communicate the, the Apollo experience to our CBS audience, which 
you know, we were on the air, I think, 42 consecutive hours with, you know, remotes and correspondence everywhere on, 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 on Earth. And we all thought that it was very kind of, you know, Rube Goldberg. Um, did you know, of course, that up until the very last minute, there wasn't even a decision to carry a television camera to the moon? No, I did not know that. Oh, the, the, you have to go back and read Stan Labar's work and, and any of the things on, on the web relating to the Apollo television system. It was definitely uh, not a major PR effort, which, of course, looked at in hindsight also is astonishing, because how could you have put all this effort and money and treasure into going where no one had gone before and then pretend it was going to be a radio show? Ridiculous. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you're just a quarter million miles away. And when you look at the techno technical specs, you know, that that those first television uh, broadcasts were the minimum that they could get away with and not really show us what was there. It was it mm -hmm. was a very carefully calculated technical plan to go through as many filters as possible so the ultimate images were as people blurry. said, blurry and ghostly and and wavering and, and very, I mean, in, 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 in one sense, they were artistically appropriate to the moment. Because I remember standing in a hangar uh, in, in um, Downey, California, which was the home of uh, North American Rockwell, which was this giant American aviation corporation which had built the Apollo spacecraft, the command and service modules, and CBS had decided to base uh, one of their uh, remotes out of Downey that night, the night of the landing and the first EVAs. And I was there in charge of the solar system uh, simulations, as well as being a technical advisor and science advisor to the unit and all that. And I had invited uh, Robert Heinlein, who was, of course, an American giant of science fiction, whose works had led to most of NASA's engineers being NASA engineers and working on getting those two guys safely down on the moon and back home uh, that extraordinary week in July of 69. And I remember standing there on the floor of this huge hangar with TV monitors on the floor, basically on chairs, and the huge hangar doors open on the Pacific side looking out across the Pacific Ocean. And the moon actually uh, was hanging as a crescent uh, over the Pacific Ocean, seen through those open hangar doors. And we could stand there, Bob and I, and we could look out and look at the real moon hanging in the nighttime sky above the Pacific Ocean on the west coast of the United States. And at the same time, we could then flick our glance down a few you know, degrees to one of these monitors perched on a chair uh, by the set uh, that we had built in this hangar. And there on that TV monitor, there were two guys in white spacesuits ghostly floating around on the surface of the moon in a broadcast sent back from that moon. And so those ghostly images were kind of poetically and metaphorically appropriate to the moment. But the idea that 40 years later we can't, you know, use the computer and clean them up and see what's really there, no, that's been taken away because NASA lost the tapes. Right, right. And I don't think we'll ever know what happened to them. I'm not so sure. Um, I think all of this is up for review. 
I think we're 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 coming up on some extraordinary revolutionary revelations. And I, I say that because there's so many things occurring now in an increasingly um, accelerated pace. Public events, political events, geopolitical events, natural events, uh, the rising rate of earthquakes all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're coming up to one of these breakpoints that everybody is referring to called 2012. I was consulting producer for NBC for a special last year on on 2012 which allowed us to put some of our own research out into the public you know open you know common space and i believe that in the physics which of course is part of our work that we're 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 coming to a point where how should i say um certain of these secrets are going to be coming out regardless of the intent of the secret keepers that they never come to light and that may sound a bit metaphysical, but it has to do with the fact that, if you'll notice, more and more public figures seem to be unable to not tell us the truth these days. If, if you watch CNN or you watch Fox or you watch uh, any news programs, you'll see major figures doing things that they normally would never do in, in terms of telling the truth and telling us how they really feel. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of the, of the you know, recent um, very embarrassing incident with Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of, of, of Britain. Just by the bigoted lady? Yeah. What he said about, yeah. Yeah. Now, normally, when you're a public figure, you are very, very aware of when you are being recorded, when you're wearing microphones, when you're in a, in a, in a, in a secure situation where you can let down your hair with your aides, your staff, when you're on and when, when you're when you're in public, you never let your guard down because you never know if something like that would would take place. Well, we're seeing more and more of these incidents where people are saying things in public that they would never have said in any previous years. Uh, and 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 you know the the, the the fur flies and the chips fall where they may, and any other cliche you can think of, you know, is operative. Um, we're seeing more and more of that. Remember back during the presidency of, of George Bush, how he would say many things that people could not really um, understand why he would say certain things in right. public? And I think it's because this physics, which of course is part of what they're keeping secret, is changing. It's changing even as we speak. And part of it is directly affecting human consciousness, as you'd imagine. If you have a solar system of physics, we're part of the solar system. It operates here on Earth like it operates everywhere else in the solar system. Um, it seems to be mandating uh, people saying things against their better judgments. For instance, did you ever see a film with Jim Carrey called Liar, Liar? Oh, certainly. That's what's going on. <laughs> people are being mandated by something. Almost like an awakening, a switch it, being turned on. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's not being done rationally. It's not being done consciously. It's being impelled, I think, by this invisible physics, which is changing at a rate that is making people, shall we say, more susceptible to telling us the truth. So this brings us, of course, back to Buzz Aldrin, because what is Buzz doing? Buzz knows, like I know, because we published the papers on Enterprise, 
that's Phobos, this little tiny moon orbiting Mars, the inner moon of Mars, less than 20 miles across, is actually an ancient giant spaceship. Let me repeat that. Phobos, the inner moon of Mars, discovered by Asa Paul at the telescope in Washington, D.C. on the night of August uh, 4th or 5th, 1877, is in fact an ancient, derelict, vastly battered and, and scarred and ruined ancient spaceship. And I believe Buzz Aldrin knows that. And I think because that was not covered in his programming, and he is so mad and upset at his programming because he now realizes what's happened to him, as all of these guys have to now, you know, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. If you had gone through this extraordinary NASA experience and were basically national heroes, and yet every time you tried to go back and, 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 and uh, touch on those memories and, and relive it, something awful happens to you inside and you've got to think about toothpaste or, or Madonna or anything <laughs> but going to the moon, right. wouldn't, you, wouldn't that really make you mad? Oh, absolutely. At who did that to you? And wouldn't you possibly be crafting a way around that so you can ultimately help end the cover-up yourself? Sure. So Certainly. how do you do that if you're being programmed to never go back to the Earth's moon? How do you do that? You obviously talk about places that are interesting and un unnatural that are not part of your programming. And that apparently is what Aldrin is doing. He is using Phobos as a kind of a mental place marker for our own moon. As a way, he even talked about the monolith. Have you seen this video? Yes, I Where have. He sits on, and he talks about the monolith, which was discovered by a friend of mine named Efren Palermo, uh, decades ago, you know, at least a decade ago, on a, um, I think it was a Mars Surveyor image of the um, uh, inner moon, taken, you know, thousands of miles away with very good long-distance cameras, because the spacecraft was in low moon, uh, low, low Mars orbit. And I had to kind of look up and across to get these images of Phobos, but on those images, particularly one in particular, there is this striking 250-foot-tall spire with a flat equilateral triangle top, almost looking like a helipad that you'd find in downtown, you know, Los Angeles or Houston, where, you know, this is where you're supposed to land. And it almost could be the elevator down into the inside of Phobos where the good stuff is still waiting. And Aldrin, on C-SPAN of all places, is bringing this up on the anniversary of the 40th Apollo mission to the moon, his mission, Apollo 11, and he's diverting attention from going back to the moon by saying, we really need to go to Mars, and we really need to go here, and oh, there's this monolith built by, people are going to say, who built it? Right. And then, he, and then he covers himself and he says, well, you could say God built it, which of course is a very clever, you know, misdirection. But sure. he's introduced into the public conversation the idea that Phobos is the place to go, and this is the place on Phobos to go, and maybe somebody placed that thing there. And that, of course, is completely off the reservation. But it's also around the edges of his programming if Buzz has been programmed to not tell us about what he really saw on the moon. And I don't need to talk about how NASA's credibility for some time has been put into question. Do you believe they're, they're being at all truthful in their statements of having not yet uncovered signs 
of intelligent life elsewhere, even though the video and photographic evidence as of late seems to clearly refute this? Well, the, the short answer is, of course, no. Of course they're lying to us. They've been lying to us for 50 years. In fact, the very genesis of NASA itself, I think, is a lie. I think NASA was formed um, not to basically you know, explore space for peaceful purposes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it was set up by Eisenhower, who, remember, was a five-star general, the only, one of the only five-star generals, and the other is Pershing, who we ever had in American history. Right. You know, come on. President Eisenhower was a general. If you're at war, if we're still at war with what's ever been going on out there, if it never stopped, if it merely has ebbs and flows, and we're in one of these ebbs, then the first thing you want to do is ascertain through intelligence what it is you're facing. Well, how do you do that? Well, of course, we back in the 50s, we had to create a whole space agency to assemble the resources to go to our nearest planetary neighbor, land there, pick up something or some things in 12 missions, and bring them back and then never go back there again. I mean, does that sound as a part of a normal opening of a new frontier process to you? Does Absolutely it sound not. that way to me? It looks to me like a military recon operation that was designed to go and get something and bring it home and try desperately to back-engineer it so we would have the technology uh, to use in, in the, in, 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 in basically in the future. And I'm glad you're talking about the genesis of NASA, because I want to talk about the historical aspects. You know, some people say NASA is simply a public relations front for the Department of Defense. Do you agree with that? Well, it's actually in the law. If you look at the enabling legislation of NASA, the NASA charter, yeah. is in the, in, the, in the NASA charter, NASA is a part of DOD. Yeah. And everything that NASA... See, people don't know this. If, if you look at the law, even as the law was amended in later years... There are key provisions in the law that nothing that NASA releases, no data, no measurements, no photographs, you know, I mean, NASA does all kinds of stuff with robotic spacecraft long beyond, you know, what the astronauts have done in terms of the moon or low Earth orbit. And it turns out if you look at the, at the fine print of the NASA charter going back to 58 when Eisenhower set it up through Congress, that everything that NASA does and everything that NASA puts out, publishes, has to go through a national security review at the presidential level, at the White House level. NASA is an agency of the executive branch of the United States government. So it isn't a civilian agency. It is military. It just doesn't happen to carry guns. Um, you know, I don't think you're going to find any guns in the, in the space station. But in terms of what NASA does, I mean, just to give you an example, we, we now know that NASA operates on an extraordinarily uh, ritualistic calendar. What, what do I mean by that? It, it, it basically means that NASA has a window of opportunity to launch or land or fly by various places that are aligned with certain celestial uh, constellations, certain celestial bodies. These things apparently have to be at certain angles that are sacred angles uh, in some kind of a ritual, and, and the angles are easily remembered, 19.5, 33, mm -hmm. 39, which is double 19.5. 
we find this pattern of landings and launches and flybys in the NASA history over and over and over and over again. In fact, I had a, a mathematician from Boeing. Uh, her name was Marianne Weaver. I had her do an analysis years and years ago, and she came up with statistics that this was not accidental by something like trillions to one against chance that these pivotal landings and, and flybys and, and launches could be taking place on this celestial alignment pattern, uh, which has nothing to do with science. It has no rationale in any observable science. It has to do with ancient sacred rituals having to do with astrology, numerology, the stars, the cosmic sphere, etc., etc. Well, that's a religion. So fundamentally, secretly inside, NASA is also driven not only by secrecy, but by a religious secrecy. And again, if you stand back and look at this as some kind of a, you know, a forensic historian, if you ask yourself what would what would what would the remnants of the keepers of knowledge who know that the human race is so much older and grander and has done much more incredible things and has left evidences of what it's done all over the solar system but the current generation is never supposed to know that what would those those keepers of knowledge look like those ritual priests look like in the position of keeping all the rest of us from knowing who we really are and what we used to really do well they would look like nasa they would function as a bunch of priests a priesthood doing these these things these incredible engineering achievements according to an ecclesiastical ritual calendar eerily like the Roman Catholic Church, of which I... I was just going to say, it smells like the Vatican or the Masons. Doesn't it? It is. And we know that all of the hierarchy of NASA that have had any key political or engineering or scientific expertise have been Masons, have been Freemasons, which, of course, is a religion. All right? Now, I know a lot of Masons, and 99.99% of them wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about if I were to sit down and have a chat on an afternoon, because they're not in the know. They're not part of the inner hierarchy, the inner clergy, shall we say. So, I mean, you asked me a long time ago, it seems, at the beginning of this interview, when I became disillusioned and disenchanted with the NASA that I thought I knew. Well, it was when I realized one day that the darn thing is basically a church. It's not an engineering and scientific program. NASA is a church, a secret church with clergy with priests, with officers, with a, an ecclesiastical calendar, and the rest of us outside are definitely outsiders, and we're not supposed to know that at the heart of what this church exists to do is to figure out its ancient, ancient origins and roots, to try to get back and retrieve some of this extraordinary magical technology, as my friend Arthur Clark used to say, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. From magic, yeah. And to use it for its own purposes, and the human race be damned. So obviously there's a wizard behind the scenes. Like the Wizard of Oz, and that is what has to change. And now, because this physics, whose clock is ticking, underneath and behind the entire solar system, as this physics changes... As we come up to this date of 2012 that the Mayans said was really important, pay attention, as this physics underlying our reality changes, 
These small plans by timid, fearful men, basically white guys, closeted in some room somewhere, you know, be it at the temple in Washington, D.C., a few blocks from the White House, you know, the Southern District Temple of, 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 of Masonry, or at some other location around the planet, those plans appear to be in the process of fraying and coming apart because the physics and the impulse to truth to who we really are and to the real history uh, which we have experienced and shared and should be benefiting is about to come out and apart at the seams. And I have something I want to tell you about, and I'll share it, and then we're going to go on break so you can recalibrate on your side. But let me say this, Richard, the shuttle accidents, the Challenger in 1986 and Columbia in 2003, prior to the Columbia accident, our mutual friend, Dr. Paul LaViolette, had approached NASA with a solution that could have prevented that accident. NASA has continued to ignore his scientifically proven proposals that could avoid more accidents. Instead, and I know they're retiring the shuttle fleet shortly, they keep risking the lives of our astronauts. And also, he proposed a solution to the airlines in which they could save over 70% of their fuel, and they're still ignoring that too. Why are they ignoring NASA and the airlines? His solutions. I have an idea, but I cannot wrap my mind around as to their recalcitrant attitudes. And let's take your answer on the other side. Rich, how do we get in touch with your great work? Well, everybody can go to enterprisemission.com. It's on the web. I have two Facebook pages under my name. Uh, there's a fan site, although I guess Facebook has now re- renamed those sites uh, like sites or whatever. <laughs> they're right. Constantly, they're constantly doing PR. And I also have a, 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 a friends page where we've got something like twelve or 13,000 people between the two of them and, and climbing. Um, I would strongly recommend visiting Enterprise periodically or visiting our, our Facebook pages. And that's where we're publishing, you know, the, the cutting-edge stuff, you know, moment to moment. The longer-term things we do at conferences, we do at uh, we do DVDs, we put out DVDs. I have two best-selling books that I've written, um, the last of which was published uh, with my co-author, Mike Barra, which is a New York Times bestseller. It's called Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. And it's available both in the original as well as the revised and expanded edition where we added, oh, something like 50 or 60 pages of new material with new photographs. I, I have photographs in the new edition that were taken by amateur astronomers with very good amateur telescopes and CCD cameras from three different locations on Earth of the same set of ruins on the moon in stereo taken by three high-end amateurs on this planet. So the time is now coming where we're no longer dependent totally on these space agencies telling us the truth. High-end amateurs now sitting on this planet looking up toward the moon can actually photograph some of these ruins from their own driveways or backyards. And if that knowledge gets out, which I'm hoping programs like yours will help us get the word out, um, that could be a real breakthrough politically in ending this cover-up and finding out what they've been really finding out and keeping from us all these years. 
And that's why our show is called Veritas. The truth, folks, this is so fascinating, and we have so much more territory to cover. We are here with Richard C. Hoagland after one year of trying. We get everybody's wishes granted. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Paul Laviolette, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.